Welcome to the latest edition of the College of American Pathologist CapCast. I'm Becca Battisfor, Content Specialist with the CAP. In this episode, Dr. Mary Edgerton will be talking with experts in breast cancer research, diagnosis, and patient advocacy. One in eight women in the United States will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. In 2023, the Susan G. Komen Foundation estimates that nearly 300,000 women and 2,800 men will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Chances are you know at least one person who has been personally affected by breast cancer. Advances in early detection and treatment methods have significantly increased breast cancer survival rates in recent years. When caught in its earliest localized stages, the five-year relative survival rate is 99%. Today, there are more than 3.8 million breast cancer survivors in the United States. This month's Cancer Awareness Podcast will explore what's on the horizon for breast cancer research, how it will impact patient outcomes, and the role of pathology data in these efforts. We'll also welcome a patient advocate to share her experience and talk about the value of data to educate and empower patients as they navigate their cancer journey. Before we get into the questions, let's have our guests introduce themselves. Dr. Edgerton, we'll start with you. I am Dr. Mary Edgerton. I was at the MD Anderson Cancer Center for a long time as a breast pathologist, but now I'm at the University of Nebraska. And I also work with the CAP on the electronic cancer protocols. Hi, my name is Rina Basila. I'm a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT, and I also lead Jamil Clinic, which is a center for AI and health at MIT. And I do research in developing machine learning methods for clinical AI and for drug discovery. I'm Dr. Ross Simpson. I'm a pathologist, community pathologist at Methodist Hospital in Minneapolis, working with the Health Partner System. I deal with breast pathology every day. Uh, I'm also boarded in clinical informatics and work with the College of American Pathologists on the PERT committee with Cancer Synoptics. Morning. My name is uh, Dr. Timothy Law. I'm currently working over at Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona at Banner University Medical Center, which is actually the flagship hospital for University of Arizona. And last year, I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Edgerton and all the MD Anderson uh, staff or MD Anderson Center as a breast fellow, and uh, happy to, to interact with you all today. Hi, I'm Rebecca Segoe-Coyle. Uh, I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor and patient advocate for Susan G. Komen and other nonprofits working to help patients. Okay, thank you so much. So Dr. Barzillay, first tell us, how does an engineer get interested in breast cancer? So uh, I personally know how engineers in general are interested in breast cancer. I can tell you about how I am personally got interested in it. I got one when I was 43 years old. I went through the treatment at MGH and I was... Um, really surprised to discover how very little technology and AI is in this treatment. And um, I'm really glad that um, the American College of Pathology is interested and working on um, bringing this technology into the care because up to this day, very little of the technology almost 10 years forward has penetrated the irregular treatment of breast cancer patient. And I really hope that we collectively can change it. That's wonderful. So you say that AI has changed breast cancer treatment. 
No, what I'm trying to say that AI, there are lots of papers about AI breast cancer treatment, but if you're looking at the journey at a regular patient, and not only in a community center, but even in a research hospital like Dana-Farber, like MGH, like Sloan Catering, there is no benefit of AI today in treatment. If you're looking at the recommendations, the standard pathway for treatment, none of them rely on AI diagnostics or on AI patient stratification. And um, this was the case when I was treated in 2014. Today we're in 2023, and unfortunately this is still the case. So what is the goal of your AI research? So I look at various questions in um, AI uh, related to breast cancer. So the first question that I was interested in and it's sort of related to my own diagnosis, but I discovered it later, is really correctly identifying the risk of the patients. Today, the patients, as, as um, you know, we've had in the introduction, one in eight women are gonna be diagnosed with breast cancer. It's actually a very significant amount. And it's, I think, the only cancer where we have federally regulated guidelines on how to predict risk, like, for instance, based on density, uh, which is extremely, extremely noisy and inaccurate way to stratify women because, you know, uh, close to 50% of women have a dense breast. Uh, so it doesn't really help to say to half of the female population that you are at risk. Um, so the first question we addressed is actually um, being able to look at the image, which is currently considered to be benign, when the patient still doesn't have uh, any human identifiable sign of breast cancer and predict whether uh, this patient will develop the disease within uh, the next five years. So this is the first question uh, that I'm trying to address, and we were able to demonstrate, um, and others replicated, is that you actually can predict it very reliably. Other questions which are most related to pathology have to do with, um, you know, reading the pathology reports and identifying, you know, different features from the pathology report. At least, you know, the last time I checked, in places like Mass Brigham General, you know, most of these reports are written in natural language, and there is no effective way to look into these reports and extract patients with a particular characteristic. So we develop a system that can take this natural language report and translate it into a form of the um, instructed forms that you can um, reliably um, query. So those are the things that I've done in the past. And if you're curious, I can tell you what I'm looking at now. Oh, yes, because it, as you may know, the CAP releases what they call the electronic cancer protocols. And these actually capture the data. They produce a little synoptic report and an executive summary for uh, anybody taking care of the patient to look at and read with all the clinically actionable details. But then they extract this data into what we call an XML statement, and you can put it into a data repository and automatically query it. Has Have any of the organizations you work with started using this? So in the past, and I didn't look at this topic in the last year or two, in the past, it wasn't there. And it is particularly important to look in the historical data when you want to see 
the projection of the patients. So the wells of all the reports uh, for the last decade or two that are stored in the MGB system were not. They were just stored in natural language. And of course, you can query natural language, but there is no guarantee that you will find the right information. That's true. And I just wonder, are the biopsies important to you as opposed to the resections? Um, so the way um, we've done it, so my work on the on risk assessment was based on mammograms and MRIs. So we didn't use the pathology data. With the pathology, we used all the pathology reports on breast for a variety of different reasons, uh, including for breast reduction surgeries and others to extract relevant information. So we were very general in the type of documents we could process. Okay, now you've given me an idea. I think we're going to have to have electronic cancer reporting for benign breast biopsies. <laughs> I think that actually it was very interesting because you can look sometimes like, yeah, the, the data that we produced was used by various, um, you know, clinicians and researchers who want to look at the projections. So if you can look back when the patient is diagnosed and you know you have full biopsy and the results but you also can can look back and extract all the other reports not necessarily cancerous and understand the trajectory of these patients for whatever reason why biopsy so i happened uh, to have worked with someone we call the father of ductal carcinoma in situ david page a very well-known pathologist um, in fact uh Dr. Law and I used to refer to him as Yoda Page, where Dr. Law was one of my trainees. Anyway, he actually kept a database and he insisted that when we read his consults and he collected slides into the database and data, that we specify everything we saw, benign and otherwise. And then he would go back and search through his database to see if he could find any, any relationships. The database still exists at Vanderbilt. Very, very rich and uh, really a great honor for me to honor David Page during this, this podcast. Well, imagine a world where you can get that data, where you can get that data from a synoptic report with discretized data coming to you, and you can build a repository and query it and have it all. This would be really amazing, not only to me, but to many other researchers that are trying to get access to this data and really study the progression of these patients to understand what's going on. And, you know, I am, you know, I'm really surprised. Again, looking, I'm now talking as a patient, not as a faculty, as a researcher. You know, like, for instance, when we're thinking about breast cancer and we're thinking about HER2 patients, we know that these patients recur long, you know, later, that it can be more than, uh, you know, standard five-year period, it's 10, it's 15, and so on. So how come, you know, and I'm one of those patients, you know, who takes tamoxifen, who is treated and so on, but how come we still don't know which ones of these patients looking at, the, at their biopsies, how we cannot predict which one of them are truly in the very high risk of recurrence when we're talking about monopositive patients. So there is a lot, a lot of information that is in this data. It's available and we can build the technologies that will give us the answer. But because we cannot resolve this problem of, you know, digital divide where people who produce the data have the data and people who can process the data typically sitting outside of the hospitals because we cannot find a way uh, 
to kind of pull these forces together, actually the people who are paying the price are the patients. And this is, I think, very unfortunate. That is so well put. And I, I'm hoping that all the pathologists listen to this, take that to heart. I know we we get, uh, I would say, a comments made about how complicated some of our cancer protocols are, and some of them are. But I think that's a part of that's a part of treatment in modern medicine. Is the more complicated our treatment is, the more complicated our reports are, and they're complicated because they need more information. And then. Again, there's the filling out forms and so on so that this data can be collected uh, properly and easily used. I'm going to switch over to Dr. Simpson. And if I can call you Ross, I know you very well. How are you? And how do you use the electronic report in your sign out? You know, I was just thinking about the story we just heard about how long it's come in my career. You know, when we started... Uh, we typed our reports. They weren't available electronically at all. They were just typed on paper and went up to the charts. And then we did go through the narrative phase when everything was narrative. And now, as you know, Mary, we use the synoptic reports and, and we use them, uh, you know, they're, they're required for the resections and we're also using them in other ways. So we collect all of that data now, um, you know, histologic type, size, everything else, as you know, is discrete data, which is very useful down the line, but also useful to us. Um, we do put one narrative line out. So in our standard workflow, we would put just, uh, you know, invasive carcinoma, no special type, parentheses ductal, and then say C synoptic report. So all of our data is in the discrete section. It avoids duplicate entry. Um, I did work with the University of Mississippi, as you know, to work out a kind of narrative summary, extracting from the discrete data and putting that into a narrative appearing report at the top. And that way, at least you still have one one entry uh, level. So we want to avoid double entry, which leads to uh, sometimes erroneous results when you where difficult cases where you're trying to decide between two and you need to change it in two places is, is, um, is just leads to errors. Um, so we have done that. Uh, it's gone, it's gone well. We have now started using uh, for the past year and a half, almost two years now, the breast biopsy templates, those are not required. But we found when we looked at our data sets, obviously, we had a number of cases in which they had complete response. And so at the resection, we had no tumor left. And so we really didn't have any data about that tumor in discrete format. We had a narrative breast biopsy report, and then we had this resection report, which had no tumor left. Um, so we have done that now along with the biomarkers. Um, so those are all available now discreetly. Um, and we're able to, to then now take all of our can breast cancer cases uh, from beginning uh, to current time to uh, and have them in discrete format and have a lot of data available to pass down to pass down the line to our cancer registries or for our use. Um, so I know the next question is how do we use that data? And locally, uh, we have a few goals. One of them is we did start looking over the data just to make sure we had some consistency. So we want to make sure that the that the report we're pulling uh, has all the cases we expect. We want to make sure the data elements that we expect to be there are there. And we want to make sure there's consistency amongst our pathologists reading these. So, you know, occasionally we get a new colleague in and may use the some of what they what we call the other category in in the cabinets. We have discrete data, but if you can't if you decide your answer doesn't belong, you put it in this other category. And we generally look at those other categories. And uh, so we pull those out 
And we'll try to decide if that's something that we need to talk to a pathologist about and try to get them to use one of the more standard categories because it was it met the 80% criteria for a special type or it didn't. The other thing we look at is we look at writing to the cap too. We look at cases of where we think the template did not allow us to fill it out as we wanted to. And sometimes we go back to the CAP. And as you know, the CAP has a, a cancer committee that deals with these questions and will come back and tell us whether that they want to split that off and make that answer available or somehow other, otherwise change the checklist to make it amenable for use. So then we went to our breast cancer group. Um, it, and, you know, we're we're local. We, we have a three to 400 bed hospital here. We have a fairly busy breast service. And you know, we look certainly at the NCCN guidelines, but we still like to know what is our local data look like. So we started by pulling um, positive margins. So we went through our data set. And as you know, the positive margin is a discrete element. So we can say, show us all the resection specimens that had positive margins. And then we look at, see if there's variability on that by surgeon or by pathologist, uh, by the PA, you know, who who, who uh, did the growth by tumor size. We looked at focality, we looked at histologic types, and we did find some variability. We're still in the stage now where we're trying to understand that variability. When pathology becomes a data model rather than just narrative, uh, you have to think about things that we normally think about in laboratory medicine. So we look at statistics and what is our sample size and what does a variation mean and what is the number. So if, if someone's surgeon's result is a little bit different than others, it may not be statistically significant. So we try to bring those numbers into uh, uh, into focus with regard to whether the uh, our expected findings really different. Um, we did look at, um, as histologic type, most of us have uh, biases. And I don't know if it's biases, but we you know, we certainly think that uh, certain cases, for instance, I expected lobular cancer to have a higher positive margin rate. And it did. It had a three times pos higher positive margin rate than the invasive ductals. Um, the invasive ductals at our institution had a 5% positive margin rate and the invasive lobulars had 16% based on a sample size of about 600. So uh, we'll continue to follow that data, um, but it's uh, information that may not guide a patient's decision on what to do next, but certainly it's part of a discussion that I think it's nice to have on expectations and whether a patient expects to have a positive margin and what are the chances of that our institution um, and have our data to look at compared to the global data. And I think when we look at globally, you know, you look at the number of institutions now using the CAP synaptic, especially the large ones, um, that we'll be able to compare our results to, you know, local large institutions near us and figure out whether our results are different than others. And I think uniformity when you're dealing with with quality assurance, you know, the first thing is to try to get some uniformity. And I think the synoptics have helped that. You know, we've basically, instead of a NERB report where people could write whatever type of breast cancer they want and use whatever terminology they wanted, we have unified that terminology and people are now um, either stuck <laughs> or, or forced or whatever you want to use. And some people don't like that, but the fact is, is this is the language that we have to discuss with our colleagues and it has to have a common meeting and patients go to other places. And it's nice to have a common terminology at a discrete level to uh, to communicate our results and to compare them to other places and try to improve. We have moved our biomarkers into the synaptic format, with the with the exception of HER2 fish. The HER2 fish, we though we they made into a laboratory test, so it is discrete data. Uh, I think we could we obviously could do a one to one correlation, so we could move it back into the CAP ECP terminology we wanted because it's a one-to-one -one between the way we built it in lab. But that 
that project did bring up another aspect that uh, pathology uh, and the, the APLISs need to look at, and that is as we send off cases outside of our APLIS, how we link those back uh, becomes critical uh, to following this data and for the researchers down the lane to follow, line to follow this data. So the researchers uh, down the line need to know uh, if a specific tumor has, a, has I'm sorry, the, the researchers need to know if the specific tumor has a specific biomarker result. And as you know, in breast cancer, this can get complicated. We um, at least once a quarter get a breast with two different tumor types in a mastectomy specimen. And that's a case where you have to be very careful how you're linking these, especially on uh, send out tests, both within our current LIS or uh, send out for like Oncotype DX where they're going outside the institution. And we find also as we send stuff outside the institution, a lot of that data gets uh, non-desk—it's not discrete anymore. So that data comes back in either a, a narrative format, which we might have to do natural language search, or uh, as a PDF, almost like an image that you'd have to you'd have to analyze. We'd prefer that stuff to come back as discrete data. And uh, so far, those projects have been slow and and ponderous <laughs> to try to get to try to get done. So I think, you know, pathology is kind of in an infancy with data science with uh, with anatomic pathology. So I think we're in a learning phase and I'm excited about uh, us, you know, making sure this data is accurate as it goes out and for the researchers down the line to be able to use this data. I'm excited about that. And, and actually, I think this information is interesting for patients. I mean, a, a woman might be making a decision between having breast conservation surgery and a mastectomy. And if she has invasive lobular carcinoma, that, that may affect her decision. I, I also wonder if we could, and especially you, since you're using the biopsies, is we could use these to better understand which patients have a complete pathologic response because we go back to the biopsy and find out the histologic type and grade and, and biomarker profile, and then relate that to how many had a complete pathologic response after neoadjuvant therapy. And I'm sure that there are relationships to be discovered there. So I'm excited that your group is using the biopsies. I'm trying to talk my group into it. <laughs> and, and I think I had to be labeled as the person who drank the Kool-Aid. And I'm like, well, I'm making it all for y'all too. <laughs> Come join me. So uh, I think that's wonderful. And I actually think that it can speed up your workflow because you're just selecting answers and moving on. The other thing I, I guess I want to say is that uh, we're doing this here. I know other places have, have had more difficulty doing this. And I just wanted to say that it is the CAPS goal and we're working with the vendors and it's the vendor's goal as well to try to make these kinds of reports easily accessible to the, uh, to the pathologist that so you don't have to be an informatics pathologist to get this data. So the stuff we're talking about is coming to a lab near you soon, hopefully your lab in, a, in an easy digestible format that uh, will not require an informatics uh, degree to uh, to do. And that's a great segue to Tim Law, who is new in practice. And Tim, I, I wouldn't have expected you to have a lot of experience with the data as Ross has had. Uh, he's actually led the effort in terms of their implementation of an APLIS, uh, but how do you feel now listening to this about whether you would encourage the use of the protocols in, in your practice? Yeah, I mean, it was a very excellent discussion. You know, it's a lot of things I learned from Dr. Simpson this morning. Um, and I think in my opinion, 
we can use the CAP synoptic, but also in conjunction with multiple different sets of data. I mean, we're using, I mean, we use Oncotype DX, we're setting up Oncotype DX, we're using, um, you know, Virtuoso for, for IHC scoring, we're using Ventana for fish. So somehow we have to incorporate the synoptic with all the different other infor information data set to create a, uh, you know, an expanded data set that we could use, you know, breast breast pathology or breast cancer is, is truly multidisciplinary. So we really have to incorporate multiple different data sets, not just the synoptic, but that's going to be, I don't know how many, I mean, just incorporating just the synoptic, we're not even there yet. So, so <laughs> I guess it, it takes multiple steps. <laughs> right. Well, we have some exciting projects uh, at CAP with some of our vendors, uh, we have what we call the vendor vendor implementation collaboration, and and we go out to vendors and say if we gave you a format and and an XML to convert this data into where it could you know be divided so that the human reader gets the readable report and then the data repository gets the data to be linked to other reports on the patient other data really. Mm -hmm. Uh, would you be willing to do that with us? And and so we're trying that out with some of our molecular biomarkers. And I really see a great future. The other thing I've done is I've taken large language models, LLMs and chat, GPT, Bing chat, et cetera. And I've put in, I had to teach it a little bit. You know, I put in the questions and I said, and answer it with this answer, read this report. I put in, made up a fake report, said, read this report and answer these questions using this vocabulary. And I didn't allow any others. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it generated a synoptic report for me. So could we actually combine an LLM with a path LIS and have it generate a synoptic report and generate the, the discretized data in the background? then have that checked by the pathologist. I mean, to me, I hope I live long enough to see that. <laughs> I think you definitely will, because I, I believe, you know, your I guess we have shared colleague, Dr. Glassy. He, he, he gave a talk on ChatGBT, you know, in our new practice meeting. And then you mentioned all the different um, possibilities. You could, you know, he practiced with a ChatGBT and you could, you, yeah, you can just, it can like analyze all all the different ways that you have signed out cases in the past. And then you just say certain keywords and it'll just auto-populate how you're signing out the case with the synoptic report. So yeah, I'm definitely seeing, you know, I mean, ChatGPT is being utilized in so much outside of medicine. Now I'm seeing it's um, performed in so many different ways here. Yeah, that is, that is something. Um, so Ross, <laughs> Mary, I'm like listening to you and I'm concerned and to Timothy, like really concerned as a professor of computer science. Um, the, the uh, yeah, the controversy of ChatGPT is you know, we, It's not a matter of controversy. First of all, you know, it's important that people who actually are bringing this technology to a patient have a deep understanding of the technology itself and not just being a user. The second problem with ChatGPT is that, as we know, uh, 
the problem of hallucination is a real problem and it happens. And the, again, and the quality of generated text is so high that a human who is not paying very careful attention and is not validating can be very easily convinced. So when we are talking about patients' life here, and we're talking about doing research at scale on the patient's data, I think there should be many, many more uh, checkpoints and, uh, you know, really um, deeper conversation of how to introduce this technology so it doesn't, you know, introduce noise and distorts the results. Because the ease of it, uh, how it can theoretically can make things much easier for the provider, for the pathologist is very um, alluring to utilize the technology, but the consequences of it can be very, very serious. And as a patient and as a researcher who actually develops the technology, it's kind of worrisome to hear this conversation. <laughs> no, well, don't worry. It's not as though anybody has adopted it. I know that... Uh... Uh, certain EHRs are talking about partnering with Microsoft to use it in their electronic health records. And and I do want to add, when I say I had to train it, is I checked all the answers and I, I just made up a simple biopsy. And my biopsy did not have any ductal carcinoma in situ in it, which was one of the questions. And it didn't see an answer. So it said, okay, ductal carcinoma in situ is present. So I had to train it to say, if you don't see an answer, then don't include that data point in there. Don't include that question. Don't make up an answer. Yes, it does hallucinate. Um, and and actually the, the usage that I'm talking about here is really very, very simple. It's really almost an NLP, except don't make up answers when you don't see it. But I agree with you. I, I have a friend who's a computer scientist and, and um, he went through a long chat GPT and, and they do have a very good vocabulary and their responses sound very real. And when, and, and what was interesting too is, is, uh, or his LLM, I don't know which one it was, his LLM would apologize when he would tell him, oh, you're wrong. It would apologize, but then it would go on and expound again and was not really understanding the geography in terms of the question it was being asked. I think that the point, and it's important question that American College of Pathology should be thinking about, what are the applications where one has a high tolerance to error and it's not going to have any you know, negative feedback because what you've done was a very correct thing. You double check, but right. you mentioned to yourself that you are using technology every day. If you need to double check every single answer, it's faster for yourself to go and just do it directly. Uh, so we are talking about this reliance on the technology. There were a lot of studies on other uses of AI when the doctor uses it because they trust it. They, they checked few answers and it was good. And then they stop paying attention when the things are wrong. So this is a good question for the FDA and others, you know, which users can really be integrated to help, you know, make your life guys easier and which users really have to be significantly more tested and further developed and utilized until they can really be part of the pipeline of a clinical pipeline. That's uh, that's absolutely correct. You do uh, you do get accustomed to reading through a synoptic, or let's say I uh, have something transcribed by someone. There's so many times where my eyes just glaze over and say, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I said. That's what I said. That's what I said. Okay, done. Oops, nope. 
that was not correct. So it, it is a challenge. Um, and, and I think I'm a pretty careful pathologist. It is a challenge to, to introduce a tool that will help you to ease your burden of work, but to make sure that, that, uh, that you're checking it. Ross, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I think I'd see it more as I'm excited about it more as an assistive technology. Um, you know, even in our data sets we have now, we have cases in which you have a low-grade breast cancer. Even it comes out ER negative, you know, that's the kind of thing that should, you know, AI could certainly come up with and say, hey, this is an unusual situation. There's these other things that look like low-grade breast cancer that are ER negative that you should consider to really expand the pathologist's view of how they're looking at a particular case rather than just reporting out results. Um, and so I, and, and that's true in image analysis too, where the, the image the AI could at least look at and say, hey, these are the things I'm thinking about. So in addition, I'm looking at the slide, I'm making my diagnosis, but then I can look and see what it's thinking about. And maybe uh, the example I've heard from you will believe that Michigan is like amyloid, this thing we don't really look for a lot, and but it occurs in vessels and it's, it's not part of our normal looking at every slide. Should we be looking for everything? The answer is yes, but do we think of that? And that's when we're those images come up and the computer says, hey, I think I see amyloid in this area here. That's not why the biopsy was taken. That's not the primary reason that this is being looked at, but I think I see this in the, and a lot of the pathologists would then look at that image and, and say, yeah, I think it is, or no, I think it's not, or order their Congo red and go on. So I think those kinds of assistive technologies I'm kind of ex excited about um, to, to assist us in getting to the right diagnosis. This is true. And when people ask me if I'm worried about my job, I'm not worried about my job. I I don't think a computer can completely replace a pathologist, but I would like it to help make my workflow go faster. I, I think actually Eric Glassy, whom Tim is going to work with, uh, mentioned one time he'd like a, a di digital image analysis to go through his cases and stack them in terms of which ones need the diagnosis first and might need subsequent testing. Not to Not to write the report, but just to say that. Although I say, if you're going to have one that's going to do your diagnosis, it should write the report also, because that's the rate limiting step uh, for me. But I think the computer human synergy is something that we should be working for, not the computer taking over. Yeah, I do. I do see the definitely the concern of, you know, the provider completely, completely not using their brain, just completely relying on AI. It's like once you see the AI, um, you just trust it, then you just let it go, let it go. Even now, even without uh, ChatGPT, the AI, just with just with prog breast prognostic marker on Virtuoso, I'm already seeing problems because uh, you know there are some some people in my practice who just 100% trust that whatever you're circling is one plus, two plus, zero, and without actually just looking at the digital slide. And so and yeah, and so there are problems like this when you have you as the user have to make the final decision yourself. So even with we're not even at you know complete AI chat GPT yet. Even now we as clinicians have to be very careful. Even with just as some some something something as you know even more basic as just scoring IHCs. So yeah. Rebecca Siegel Coyle, you've been waiting patiently. Please come. Please tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with breast cancer. Sure. So just a little background too. So I was diagnosed when I was 35 and uh, also found out that I was BRCA2 positive. Um, that work has 
kind of, I guess I learned very quickly to advocate for myself in the patient advocacy world. We talk about like, we may not have come from the cancer world, um, you know, from training, but we sure did jump into the deep end of it to try to learn the different things that we need to know as a patient to be, to make those data-driven decisions that actually impact the rest of our life. So having this sort of data at our fingertips to know what, what our data looks like, how it's going to be used and like for research, like, um, I think a lot of folks, while the data, like with, in the current situation, like um, there may not be the right treatment at the moment, but, you know, the data that comes from you going through this can also uh, impact others down the road and improve therapies and different techniques, kind of like what we're talking about now. Um, as I said, I'm a BRCA2. I have a genetic mutation and learning. I, I was the first one in my family to get tested. So um, earlier, I'd really had to advocate to, to have a mammogram at the age of 35. Um, and in fact, I actually felt the lump in my breast at a year before, but because the my family history was on my father's side, which it does matter. <laughs> I I was in biology in college. I know you get half your genes from your, you know, each parent. So it does matter. But um, my doctor at the time said she didn't care about that. She only cared if it was my mother or sister who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, I've learned since then that you just, you know, how to advocate for myself, knowing that I am a carrier and that, you know, the different uh, screenings and different techniques that I need to do moving forward to have the quality of life that I want. Um, I will say that it did kind of launch me professionally into this AI world. So I work for healthcare startups kind of from a program management uh, standpoint. So uh, working with companies that also ingest a lot of the data that patients are given, um, curation and making it available back to the different uh, researchers and pathologists and such to, to help the patients make that decision. And I believe you do a lot of work with the Komen Foundation also. I do. In my spare time, I am an advocate, uh, advocate and science member, um, which means I work a lot with the researchers. Um, they require to have a patient advocate on their research studies. And so working closely with them to understand that and ensure like they're thinking about the patient um, as well from beginning to end. So we review the um, protocols. Um, from a patient lens, you know, we, a lot of us do not have that science degree. So it, in some ways it's a foreign language, but if we look at the impact of what the research is trying to do, look at the protocol, the aims um, and the outcomes, then we can help guide the researchers to make sure like they're thinking of, about the, the right things that can have a positive impact towards patients. And you also work with the Patient Center Research Institute. I think it's known commonly as CORI. Yes, I'm also a reviewer on their end as well. So reviewing um, once studies have been completed or worked on looking at it and looking at the plain language summaries of it to, you know, to see how that's going to be viewed from a public standpoint with the patient lens. So the 21st Century Cures Act has required that pathology laboratories make their reports available to patients. Have you uh, heard any reaction to that? Can you share that with us? 
I think from, I, I can only speak from my own standpoint and some of my colleagues that I work with as patient advocates, but I think, you know, knowledge is power. And so having that information can only improve like your improve your way that you can advocate for yourself. So understanding the pathology of what your tumor is and what how it might react is really important because it helps you advocate for, um, I think Dr. Simpson, you mentioned like patients will go to other um, facilities and be able to, we take that data with us. Like once we've been diagnosed, we take that data with us. So we need to be able to help communicate to our doctors, you know, what, what we would like and how we can, um, you know, prepare for, you know, preventing additional uh, recurrences and that sort of thing. So in the moment when you're diagnosed, it's like I said before, you've jumped into the deep end of the cancer world and it's very overwhelming. Um, so it's, it's hard to really comprehend what all of this means, but once you get on the other side, once you've had a break from all the appointments and surgeries and can actually comprehend what this means, then you can take that information with you. And, you know, Komen also has a new uh, registry called uh, share for cures, which you can uh, share your data through there that allows uh, researchers to be able to, to use that to, to help improve. Uh, therapies and such. That's really good to hear. Komen does fund a lot of very important work and both at the research level and the lab level. And, and in fact, Dr. Barzilay asked that, uh, how can we figure out which of these patients are going to recur? And I was involved in some Komen funded research looking at, uh, 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 well, not recurrence, but actually what they call interval uh, diagnosis. So the intervals for mammograms are something like once a year when you reach a certain age. And there are people who actually develop a cancer within that interval. And it tends to be a more aggressive cancer, which they found not through screening, but through being able to palpate it, which means that it was a bigger size. So trying to look at some of the factors that affect that. Even knowing some of that information too, like, of course, we would love to have a crystal ball that says, hey, this patient is going to recur. This patient knows we can educate that patient how to advocate for those different things. But truth is, it depends on where you live too in the world that that doesn't always happen. And so, you know, again, I'll come back to like knowledge is really power, but also having that knowledge, you have to be mentally prepared to deal with, you know, knowing that you might be at higher risk. Um, knowing that you might have a genetic mutation, like how do you use that information to help you also live a good quality of life too, without having that cloud over you right. <laughs> or um, waiting for the other shoe to drop. So just trying to balance that. Yes. Unfortunately, medical care varies tremendously across the span of hospitals and regions of this country. And that's, when I get a call from people, it it's just amazes me sometimes the level at which they have uh, no testing available. In fact, my hometown, I just uh, had a podcast with a physician there who was a family practitioner. And when he arrived there in the late 70s, early 80s, there was no ambulance. And if somebody was hurt or you know, suffering pains, they just drove them over to the little ER of this little community hospital. And when, when you read about how patients have to be uh, 
handled if they've had any kind of, of injury. You know, it's just somewhat shocking. But they do have an ambulance now. They do all point of care testing. And then they send samples about 40 miles away if they need more testing than that. So that shows you, you just don't have that. Ross. Rebecca, I have to ask you, with the release of information to the patients, one of the controversies we have, and we get concerned about it, is that it gets released to the patient the same time it gets released to the doctor. And the doctors are busy people. And so, you know, we get concerned, especially on Friday afternoons, that we're going to be giving someone a malignant diagnosis Friday at three o'clock, and the physician's not going to see it till he gets back from his three-day weekend on Tuesday. And it's one of the areas where I, I you know, there's debate on whether we should be able to delay it a few days and let this to, to try to manage that interface, which can be, as you know, very emotional and it's so much information. And it's a, it's kind of, so it's, I, I'd be interested in your patient view on, on that, on that interface and how we a little bit get stuck in that. And we're worried we're not doing the patient, um, we're, we're leaving them maybe emotionally um, uh, struggling over a weekend for instance. Well, I kind of have to laugh a little bit because as someone who, you know, was told that they got, they had cancer on a Friday afternoon and don't Google it. Like, I mean, it, I think communication is really key, like, and setting those expectations. You don't want someone to spin. I mean, I always say, how would you want your information to be communicated to you? Do you want to find out on a Friday afternoon? Um, I mean, it, it is what it is. It's not going to change anything, but I get, you know, we're all human at the end of the day. Like that's the main thing that we have in common. And so treating Heather right. with kindness and like respect, knowing like you're just about to disrupt someone's life. Um, personally, when I, I like having my results, so I like to be prepared to have the conversation with my physician. Um, but it is, I, I, I mean, the moment that, you know, they called me on that Friday afternoon and said, your results are positive. You have cancer. It's like my world was flipped upside down. It was like I had different plans for that weekend. And I do think, you know, when you got called, what I'm worried about more is the ones when we put it out as a pathologist, that the patient gets it on their chart in their iPhone and no one calls them. So they don't have anyone to talk about what the next step is. And those are the ones I worry a little bit about. I'm actually for the patients getting the results as fast as possible, but I worry about that interface when it's not personal. Well, I think too, I mean, there's two different ways to think of about it. I mean, one, yes, patient, the proactive patient is looking at their phone. They're looking for those results to, you know, if you do have to give some bad news, like you have cancer, you know, you might want to be a little more thoughtful and like delay it. But also if they, if the patient is expecting those results, um, they are going to spin. Like, why haven't I gotten it? Clearly it's the bad news. And that's, and that's kind of what I've shared with my colleagues that are concerned about them on the clinical side is that to prepare the patient to know that they might get the results before they do, and there might be a few days delay. And a lot of times just from the mammogram, et cetera, there's a high probability so they know that there's certain things. So so I, I try to, to set it up that way so that at least everyone's on the same plane. And, you know, not to keep sharing like my own journey, but I will say from my when, when I felt the lump, my doctors, everyone was even the path, uh, not the pathologist, but the um, radiologist, they're like, this isn't cancer. You have nothing to worry about. So when I got that call, I was actually on a conference call uh, for work and I put it on mute. Cause I was like, this is going to be quick. They're going to say, everything's fine. Um, I quickly had to get off that conference call and deal with the call that I got and just trying to like wrap my head around like what they were telling me. Um, so it was a little bit of a shock, but I still think as much as you can help educate and prepare people for that ahead of time, then it, the, the patients can have a better, like 
be more receptive to the information that you're sharing. Like I said, your your world is just flipped upside down, something that you're not expecting, especially for those of us who've been, you know, diagnosed at a younger age, you know, you know, we're expecting to get married, have babies, like that sort of thing. We're not expecting to have to go through cancer. I just want to opine on the last point about not getting information for the patient. I was treated at MGH, which is considered to be the best of the hospitals. I really cannot say that I got some information on my initial diagnosis uh, from the doctor that I didn't find on Google. Because when we're talking about standard diagnosis, we're not talking about something which is very unique. For many things, you can go and query. And for those of us who went through biopsy, you are not resting for one second until you get the result. And even you can say, oh, why wouldn't we do it on Friday afternoon? Let's do it on Monday morning. Uh, uh, Rebecca, maybe in your case, because they falsely told you that everything is okay, but who exactly can sit down there and relax and celebrate the weekend with the family when they're waiting the results? So I think that the soon as at the moment that the results are available, the patient deserves to uh, to get them. And some people may decide that it's their right and they would like to do it through verbal conversation with their provider. And one can, you know, provide them with this option if that's their choice. But the vast majority of us uh, who really waiting for this result have to get it as soon as it is available. And I'm not only sharing my experience, I'm sharing experience to, you know, so many other patients that I met, you know, in the last nine years. So this will be my advice. Share as soon as they are available, even if it is through the phone interface. Well, I think too, if you're a pathologist and you're getting those, you know, results, and then you need to be able to share that with a doctor, like if the doctor is knowing that there's some results coming, like try to plan ahead and like reach out to the patient as, as soon as possible. Just like you said, like a, it, we we are spending, we are waiting for those results. Yeah, we you know, what we set up is the doctors were just too busy. So we we have um our our breast center has nurses that work in this format. So we page the nurse at the time that we set we sign out the case. So they try to call the patient uh, that within that hour. That's really fascinating. They're really different points of view. I know I want to know everything at once, but uh, and I, there is an emotional side to me, no doubt about it. Uh, but also I have access to search engines and I know how to find the ones I like and beyond search engines, you know, to literature that I can read and understand. So I, <clears throat> I think we've lived in a paternalistic medical society in the past where people didn't even know their diagnosis when they were dying. I, I remember cases like that. It's like, don't say cancer in front of him. He doesn't know he has it. And times have changed. Yeah, I'm definitely in in in, uh, in agreement that we need to release the results right. I remember in the old days they wouldn't be released until the doctor released them. We'd have things go on for like pap smears would be 30 days and they wouldn't have a pap smear result. It's just like what the heck are we doing? Right, right. We could go on forever, <laughs> but I know our hour is coming to an end. This has really been a great podcast, and I really want to thank all of y'all and and all for chiming in. That those were all really very important points and. And uh, thank you all again for participating. And Becca, I'm going to hand things back to you. Thank you, Dr. Edgerton. And thank you to our guests for sharing your expertise and experiences, especially this month, as October has been recognized as Breast Cancer Awareness Month for nearly four decades. And I want to thank you all for listening to this CAPCAST. 
You can find links to the CAP's cancer protocols in the episode description. And for more information about the CAP, visit CAP.org.